Before we begin, please refer to the disclaimers in the link on the podcast notes and note that none of the information provided during this update constitutes investment advice or a recommendation, solicitation, or offer by Galaxy Digital or its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. As always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne, head of Firmwide Research at Galaxy Digital. We have a fun episode for you today, sort of a roundtable. We've done this before. Lots of news happening in the crypto uh, world this week um, and in the macro world. We're joined, though, by Christine Kim, as always, from Galaxy Research. Hey, Christine. Hello, Alex. How's it going? Good. It's going great. Hey, Trey. How are you doing? we got Trey Aslani on uh, here from Galaxy Digital Trading, his second appearance on the pod. How are you doing, man? Living the dream as always. Thanks for having me on. Trey Aslani on. Trey of the House of the Lion, uh, our very own Lannister here. Uh, oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> right? They were the lions, right? In yeah, Game of Thrones? Yeah. That's, clean. That's clean. Yeah. Let's go. That's clean. All right. And we got Bimnet Abibi, uh, also our friend from Galaxy Digital Trading, to talk markets with us. How are you doing, Bim? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Let's go. So uh, look, look, we're going to do a bunch of crypto news, a whole round robin medley, uh, a smorgasbord, an assortment, a cornucopia, if you will, on on crypto. But before we get to that, uh, let's talk to Bimnet. We had some uh, Jay Powell gave a speech in Jackson Hole last week that I think really frightened markets. He was what did he say? Growth recession instead of soft landing was the language he used. Uh he seemed very, uh, very determined to make sure markets knew that the Fed was committed to keeping rates high. Yes. Um, and it was, it was really strange um, in the sense that the Fed, like the other members of the, of the Federal Reserve, you know, prior to, to Jackson Hole, were essentially all saying that the same thing. You know, they were repeating higher for longer, you know, terminal rates, you know, close to four. They have to keep financial conditions tight and, um, you know, monetary policy and, and restrictive territory for, for, for the foreseeable future. You know, they're not anywhere close to, to taming inflation. And, and that one inflation print that, that misses to the downside is not going to really convince them that inflation has topped and, and, and is slowing. And so, you know, essentially what happened was, was Powell re- repeated what a lot of the Fed members in, in the days and weeks leading up to Jackson Hole had been saying. Uh, but you know, the market was pushing back against those Fed members because they hadn't actually heard Powell say it himself. Um, and so the fact that you had the, the, the head of the Federal Reserve actually, uh, you know, sort of reinforce what, what his other members were saying sort of gave credence to, to the message and, and the market, you know, took it in stride and, and they started to price in higher terminal rates. Um, equity started to, to sell off. Um, and broadly speaking, you know, financial conditions tightened, you know, credit spreads widened, so on and, and, and so forth. Um, but Powell did exactly what he wanted to do. He told the, the market that they're going to be restrictive for longer. That caused you know, financial conditions to tighten further. The Fed is trying to tighten financial conditions aggressively because they're, they're trying to tackle, you know, eight and a half percent inflation. Um, in addition to that, you had on the same day, uh, an article come out from from Reuters suggesting that the ECB was considering 75 basis points instead of 50 uh, for their September meeting. And so you had, you know, another central bank sort of reinforce the message on, on the same day. And, uh, and so right now, what, you know, what that leaves you with is, is 
basically every G10 central bank, with the exception of, of the Bank of Japan, tightening financial conditions, removing excess liquidity from the market, raising interest rates, uh, and telling you that they are all committed to um, essentially tackling an inflation using the, the tools that they have. And high level, you know, I don't think that's really good for, for an asset like, like Bitcoin. You know, personally, I, I think of, of Bitcoin as, as a gauge on monetary credibility. Um, and as far as I can see, um, all of the central banks, you know, that that matter are doing their best to, to regain that credibility. You know, they're literally, you know, making stocks sell off when, you know, people are hurting at, at home because inflation's too high. I mean, I, I saw a, a ridiculous video, which, you know, I don't know how much weight you want to put on it, but it was a, of a food line in, in Milan that stretched, you know, like a really, really long block and around the corner, et cetera. Um, and you have, you know, electricity bills going out the roof, like, you know, insane amounts of inflation and unemployment starting to tick up a little bit. And yet the central bank is still trying to raise rates. And so I think that goes to show you how committed um, these central banks are to um, fighting inflation. And it's in stark contrast to the policy we had, you know, during COVID, which was the easiest monetary policy, you know, in history. <laughs> Um, and so now you're, you're seeing a, a, an equal and opposite sort of reaction um, to that action. And, and I think uh, it seems uh, appropriate. Yeah, risk assets were, were just down broadly. I mean, they're, they're down again this week. Yep. Um, we're recording this on Wednesday, uh, August 31st. Um, and, and, and cryptos were down pretty bad. I mean, Bitcoin uh, was down in the mid 19,000s, sub 20K. ETH was sub 1500. Um, you know, so definitely a lot of a lot of uh, I don't want to say fear, but um, you know, tepidness, tenuousness uh, on the part of risk investors. Absolutely, and you know, th there's a couple rules you know that that I live by in in markets, and the number one rule I, I live by in markets is don't fight the Fed, or and don't fight the central banks. And the central banks are basically telling you, you got to sell risky stuff. They they want growth to be lower. They want unemployment to move higher. They literally want companies to lay off people. They want, yeah, you know, rich people a to growth get poorer. Recession. They want anyone that said. owns risk assets to get poorer. And so, you know, when the Fed is telling you that, and the Fed's telling you that they're going to keep policy restrictive for a prolonged period of time, you just got to listen. And I think that's what the market's doing. And I think that there's technical things in in the market right now that are sort of artificially keeping you know uh, asset prices you know a little too elevated, you know stock buybacks, you know trend following accounts, just you know people just chucking cash into their 401ks because that's what they've been trained to do for the past decade. Um, and once you get through all that, um, you know the the reality is you're going to have you know weaker earnings. You know you, you're going to have margin compression. Um, you're going to have you know assets that, that are going to continue to sell off, you know, high yield spreads are, are going to continue to widen, you know, companies, you know, business models that used to work, you know, in the era of, of, of easy money are no longer going to work. You're going to see defaults, bankruptcies, um, et cetera. And, uh, you know, I think, I think that the most important sort of thing to take away from, from, from the Jackson Hole speech is, is sort of the, the comparisons that, that Powell made to, to Paul Volcker. Um, and for those that, that don't know, uh, Paul Volcker, um, you know, was, was the head of the Fed, you know, during, you know, the, the inflation period in, in, in late 60s and, and early 70s. And, you know, he jacked up rates, um, you know, above 10% and, you know, caused 
and inflation to, to cool. Um, and so, you know, he's the, the guy that, that Powell sort of, you know, looks up to uh, and is, is sort of trying to, to emulate in a way. Um, and if you remember, you know, his congressional testimony from, from a couple months ago, you know, he, he basically said that Paul Volcker was one of the best public servants in, in the history of, of the United States. And so, you know, I think Powell, you know, after having gotten reelected, you know, is thinking about his sort of tenure um, and, and the predicament that he's in, in the context of, you know, the, the inflation we had in, in the 60s and I guess 70s. And so, you know, and that means he's probably really committed and he's going to, you know, take risk assets a lot lower. He's going to take unemployment a lot higher. He's going to do whatever it takes to bring inflation down. Yeah, I think um, it's going to be interesting. I, I totally agree. It's it's prolonged. Um, so long as inflation is prolonged, the Fed's policy here is, seems pretty straightforward at this point. Um, and that sort of any hopes that the summer's bear market, aggressive bear market rally um, actually being a recovery are, have sort of been dashed. Um, I put out a note on Sunday uh, or on Monday saying that Bitcoin was trading below its 200-week moving average. It's only done that on four other occasions, and each of those was sort of a historic um, opportunity for long-term investors, if you go and look at that chart. Um, that's what I wonder here. I mean, I, I said, you know, downside, definitely possible. Um, I, I, I drew levels at the $17,000 range. Um, but you have to wonder at some point, the sort of TradFi owners of Bitcoin have already sold. And so you're looking around at who the marginal buyer is and it's, you know, sat stackers, it's Bitcoin maximalists, it's long-term believers. And so I wonder, depending on how, uh, of course they can come under financial pressure as well in their other assets and their mortgages and their car loans and their day to day and may, may need to sell Bitcoin also, but they look to be a much more durable long-term buyer. And so my sort of question there is if we have long-term, um, you know, degrading of, of risk assets, broadly equities, et cetera, and that continues for a long time, like does Bitcoin break down like significantly more? I mean, my sort of, you know, just looking at the history of Bitcoin, which of course occurred entirely in an easy money world, right? So, it, you know, you have to take that history with a grain of salt. But it's sort of just that, like, you know, don't fight the don't fight the history on Bitcoin, right? Long term, it's a diminishing supply. It's credible. It's neutral. And it's, you know, trading historically cheap. Yeah. Uh, so one quick correction on, on what I said earlier uh, before I, I get to what you said. Uh, Paul Volcker, you know, served as Fed chairman from 79 to 87. So not, you know, 60s and 70s, but 70s and, and 80s. So just quick correction on on, on that point there. Yep, yep, uh, yep. And then uh, to your point, um, I think uh, you have to just think about it as what it is right now, which is, uh, you know, I, I think the market cap of, of Bitcoin is 400 and $400 billion and change, you know, maybe, maybe a little bit more than that. Um, and any asset that is, you know, 400 you know, billion dollars in, in size just trades like a macro asset, right? And, you know, I get it, you know, that you've got a lot of, you know, this, this community that there's a lot of sort of, you know, zealot types in, 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 the, in the Bitcoin world. But at the end of the day, like people sell assets, you know, for, for the reasons you mentioned, when, when your rent is, you know, going up at, at an insane rate, when your, your gas prices is, is, is really high, when your 401k is, is taking a huge hit, right? You, you, you sell assets, you know, because you're, you're not generating enough cash to, to cover your sort of day to day. And, and just think about, you know, the average retail person right now. 
Um, if you think about like just one metric that sticks out to me is, is the amount of credit card accounts that have been open this year. Right, you're talking about like a hundred million like new credit card accounts that have been opened this year. The consumer balance sheet has degraded, you know, pretty materially this year. One, it's a function of not getting stimulus payments anymore, um, and and the other is just really high high inflation. And so you've got consumers that that are sort of losing, you know, disposable income every month and dipping into their savings and going into, you know, spending on, on, on credit. And so, you know, when that happens, when you're in that part of sort of the, the U.S. business cycle, you know, people tend to, to sell assets. And high level, like if you think about, you know, Bitcoin, it's, it's a 70 vol asset that has, you know, is down what this year? At least 50 percent, 45 percent on the year. Um, and so it, it's, it doesn't have a good risk return profile. I would rather own things that have cash flows. I literally thought about how many um, assets, you know, I'd rather own than, than, than Bitcoin right now. And, and, it, and it was a lot. And a lot of them were just simple things like I'd rather own Apple stock, which has a much higher sharp and, you know, tremendous cash flows and, and a great valuation and is also going to perform well in an easy money environment. And so I think if you think about Bitcoin, in, in, you know, in terms of its alternatives and the investable universe, if you're an investor, it just doesn't look that that great right now from a risk perspective. Um, and from a, you know, substitutability, you know, sort of perspective. Awesome. Thank you. I mean, my goal personally is to acquire as much of the Bitcoin network as possible. So (laughs) if you're trying to to stack sats, this is probably a good time, but you're right for, if we're denominating in dollars, things are looking precarious. Um, let's go on, let's get into our crypto milieu. Um, is that how I say that word in French? Does anyone know Trey? I I don't know. Do you know? (laughs) I got, I got nothing. It sounded okay to me. Let's roll with it. (laughs) Okay. Um, let, Christine, maybe let's ask you first, give us an update on the merge. Uh, you know, I think what the, the total terminal difficulty is estimated now around September 13th. Um, so we're, we're still about two weeks away as we record this on August 31st, but anything been happening that, uh, we should be paying attention to? Not too much. I think all the node operators of Ethereum now are just scrambling to upgrade their machines, upgrade their devices in preparation for the merge. Um, While the big event happens in two weeks time, uh, there's going to be an initial part of that upgrade, um, the first part of it, which upgrades the consensus layer of Ethereum, which is the beacon chain. That's happening next Tuesday. Um, And that doesn't really require... um, node operators that are on Ethereum right now to make any changes. It really just requires validators, node operators on the beacon chain to upgrade their devices. Um, But shortly thereafter, like shortly after Tuesday, um, we could see like the Ethereum merge upgrade itself start to happen. Um, The original estimations for when the merge was going to happen was around the 16th. But seeing as that timeline has been pushed up because of all the hash rate that's been going up on Ethereum, I think node operators right now are just like trying to prepare as best they can for um, an upgrade that might happen sooner than they expect. Yeah, because hash rate on ETH has been rising uh, the last several days. It's at its highest level, I think, in, in over a month. Um, maybe miners are, are trying to, you know, earn as much ETH as they can, uh, before the proof of work goes away, um, either just for pure opportunistic reasons, um, or, um, or maybe just stack uh, as much ETH as they can so they can be a bigger validator when the merge happens. Um, but that does, right. The, the hash rate increasing pulls forward the actual merge execution date because it's based on that total terminal mining difficulty. 
It does. And it was one of the reasons why developers had thought perhaps to do two TTDs, like two different values for when the merge should happen, because if hash rate would increase so much that actually like the Paris upgrade, which is the merge activation on Ethereum, if that happened before Bellatrix, so before next Tuesday, uh, that would cre- that would create like a lot of disruptions on the network that would be an attack vector, basically. Um, so originally developers had thought that they would uh, update the TTD value only after the Bellatrix upgrade had happened. Uh, but for simplicity reasons and to ensure that node operators don't get confused, uh, developers kind of changed um, at the last minute that activation process and, and simplified it down to just one TTD value. Um, and so far, it looks like, you know, hash rate on Ethereum, there's there's just such a high, small probability that the hash rate would increase so much that uh, we have enough we have enough accumulated difficulty to, to have the merge activate before the 6th. Um, so I think developers are still in the clear for the Paris upgrade to happen after Bellatrix, which is what everyone wants. I think the question is now for node operators to be aware that even if you've upgraded your consensus layer client, your execution layer client will need an upgrade sooner than you might expect. Got it. Um, all right. Well, that's the merge update. Uh, appreciate it, Christine. Let's dive into a couple other things, uh, just with the whole group. Um, you know, I guess while still sticking with hash rate related stuff, Bitcoin hash rate jumped nine point two six percent this morning. Sorry, Bitcoin difficulty ju- adjusted upwards nine point two six percent this morning um, on Wednesday. That was the largest increase uh, I think since January of this year. Um, that means miners are really feeling the pain when it comes to revenue, right? Because when difficulty increases, it becomes more difficult to mine a Bitcoin successfully. Um, and I think one measure we like is called hash price. It's at its lowest in three years, which is sort of an aggregate way of looking at the uh, dollar output of a terror hash of of Bitcoin hash rate. Um, you know, I don't know, man. These miners are really getting squeezed right now. Absolutely. Um you know, I, I think that there's a lot of pain in, in, in the minor community. Um, just just from a, you know, a, a context perspective, you, you went from, you know, last year being able to, to finance your activities incredibly cheaply, um, you know, either, you know, by, by getting loans from, you know, using your, your, your Bitcoin on, on balance sheet or, you know, raising equity, uh, whatever it may be, financing for, for miners was, was incredibly cheap last year. Um, and, and this year, you know, interest rates have moved higher and the price of Bitcoin has moved a lot lower and, and the, the equity value of a lot of the, the, these miners has, has moved a, a lot lower. Um, and so, you know, when, when it comes time for them to, to pay for machines that they've ordered, um, when it comes time to, you know, pay the electricity bills, when it comes time to basically... Uh, Which are also up, right? Electricity has gotten a lot more expensive as well. Ex- exactly. Um, and so, you know, these guys are, are in a, a real bind. Um, and I, I think that there's a lot more pain ahead. I, I, I think you're probably going to see, you know, ASIC prices, you know, continue to, to fall. Um, I, I think you're going to be in an operating environment where, where most of these miners are going to be, you know, consistently selling um, their, their production. Um, I think this is a, a, a market uh, that is going to reward, you know, the, the, the most sort of efficient um, operators in, in, in the space. And so, you know, I, I, I genuinely think that, you know, that it's going to put a lot of downward pressure on, on, on Bitcoin prices. 
um, because of how aggressive you know the, the, these miners ha- have to be with with, with selling their, their their production and and, and uh, yeah yep. so you know it's definitely not a not not a good picture in the minor world and you know i think you're talking about bankruptcies and in, in some instances and sort of you know buyouts at you know very low levels um so there's there's a lot of distress um and you know i think that the best miners out there are the ones that have sort of you know secured uh their electricity costs um, they, they have a good handle of you know sort of the, their, their future liabilities with, with respect to um, you know, m- you know, new machine outlays, et cetera, and, and sort of, you know, increasing production on, on, on a go forward basis. So uh, th- there's a lot of things to consider, but the industry as a whole is, is in rough shape. And, you know, with Bitcoin prices continuing to fall and difficulty climbing, um, it's not getting any better. Yeah, the climbing is probably because of new uh, uh, Antminer uh, S19 XPs coming online, which is a, 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 and having been delivered, which is the sort of most um, efficient Bitmain uh, Bitcoin mining machine is my guess. Um, but we're going to have Brandon Bailey from the Bitcoin mining team at Galaxy on next week. So we'll talk a lot more about that um, and check out uh, their mid-year 2022 Bitcoin mining report. It's on our website at galaxy.com. I can't research. recommend it enough. I think we have uh, one of the best mining teams in the industry, and uh, I would highly recommend that that report. Yeah. Awesome. So, all right, Trey, this is where I really need your help here. Curve. Uh, the, the Curve founder was hinting at uh, this Curve Finance, the sort of uh, stable coin or stable asset AMM uh, on, on ETH primarily. They, the, the founder said, I guess he hinted more that what, what a lot of people have thought was coming, uh, which is the release of their own uh, decentralized stable coin. Like, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, it makes a ton of sense, right? Like, they've kind of been the, the picks and shovels for, for the stable coin wars. I think it makes a ton of sense to kind of throw their hat in the ring. They are one of the biggest uh, DeFi platforms by total value locked. So if you think about like economic capacity, they're probably in the best position to, to roll out a stable coin, right? Because A, it doesn't need to be as over collateralized, right? They're, they're stable coins. Um, and B, they, they already have like most of the economic activity going on there. Um, so I think it's really smart. I think kind of all these like pooled debt LP instruments, uh, will eventually, you know, get levered up through these stable coins. Like Aave is, you know, looking to make their own thing. A compound was thinking about it a while ago, obviously make or die. Um, a lot of interesting stuff going on there, by the way. But uh, in terms of uh, Curve USD, it's, it's definitely exciting. And, uh, you know, you can't, these aren't like bull markets anymore. You can't just do one thing. You really need to kind of scrap and claw for revenue. Um, and that just, this just introduces a new revenue line for, for V Curve holders. Trey, why doesn't the Curve stablecoin need to be as over collateralized as other stablecoins? So like on Maker, right, I think you need like 150% for Rapid Bitcoin and ETH, yeah. but it's like basically one-to-one for like PAX and, and uh, USDC. So I think you'd be comfortable, right? They're, they're just inherently less volatile. Um, so you can like offer like higher LTV terms. Is my guess. Oh, so they're only gonna. There, are you think they're only gonna allow uh, other stable coins to collateralize their curve stablecoin? No, that's just where the majority of TVL is now. So I think that's Got not it. immediately. But I could totally see them adding, you know, new uh, new pools and then letting people draw on that. You think it turns like because I mean, Ave Maker, um, maybe others. I mean, I'm not an expert really in this part of the ecosystem, but. 
Um, does this turn these DeFi apps into like super dApps, like giant multi-purpose neobanks that do multiple things, right? They exchange. Yeah. They, they, that, they, is that how that's where goes? everything's headed? Like the gloves are I off. Hope so the gloves are off. You're not gonna you're not gonna have one you know token for swaps and one token for lending and one token for margin trading. I don't think that makes a ton of sense. Um, I think you're gonna these are gonna look a lot like super apps. Um, I think honestly the best example right now is probably Pancake on on BN, mm-hmm. uh, BS Binance Smart Chain. Um, they do everything and they make you know real money. So I think like that's kind of the model uh, that I think a lot of these uh, protocols are going to have to go to, especially when there's less economic activity happening. The future of France? Pancake uh, Swap makes real money. Yeah, they make real money, Trey. They, you know, some of them, some of them do kind of ish. It's, I guess it's not a surprise to think that Binance is on sort of the forefront of uh, experimentation uh, when it comes to their uh, stuff or push, maybe I should say pushing the envelope. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they have the best, you know, UX in the game, like, using Binance is awesome. And, and it's, it's all about making it seamless. I mean, we can go back and forth on decentralization. And I think people are realizing that matters a lot now. But in terms of user experience, like you really can't beat like the whole trust wallet, like pancake swap thing. It's pretty good. Let's let's keep it going. You mentioned Maker, and so there was a lot going on there. Um, there there are there's there was there was been some incredible like shifts in sort of the Maker governance political organization, or I guess political landscape over the last several weeks following the Tornado Cash sanctions by OFAC and and sort of the second order effects and rippling out of implications that may have for other applications like MakerDAO that rely on centralized stablecoins. Um, Rune Christensen has long been a promoter of this endgame concept um, and and has sort of battled with these more um, sort of uh, pragmatic, I don't want to say Rune's ideas aren't pragmatic, but they're a little bit more futuristic, um, this pragmatic faction that instead sort of favors a more professionalized DAO core unit structure. But recently, Rune has been calling for reducing MakerDAO's exposure to real world assets and even suggested that perhaps they should let die float away from the dollar um, as sort of part of a solution to keep maker focused on decentralization rather than say growth or stability what do you think about this trey yeah i mean this is this is kind of exactly what we were talking about on, on the pod you know a few weeks ago um it's a focus on getting the crypto world to the outside world not bringing the outside world in because now you have these complications with with sanction risk and, and seizure risk. Um, I think from Rune's perspective, the, the way he explained it was, we're okay taking you know a fixed amount of real world asset risk because it's not like the government's going to come in and say, you know, these are my assets now, like seizing everything. They're going to allow for like an orderly offboarding. And then what changed with the tornado cash stuff was like, actually, they're not going to do that. They could just come for the jugular one day and we'd be none the wiser and there's nothing we can do about it. Um, so what do you do in the face of that? Right. Like you have to make your system strong. Uh, and, and that does, you know, mean sacrificing um, some scalability. Um, I don't know. We, we chatted about it briefly on the pod last time, Christine and I. And you asked, like, is it possible to have a real decentralized stablecoin? Uh, it is, but it's not going to mirror the U.S. dollar. It's going to be, you know, a, a bit a bit of a free foe like Rye, um, which is another reason I love crypto, by the way, is like, you know, this guy, Amin, like, thought up this idea 
it, not that it like rise like gigantic, but it's like kind of forcing maker's hand, right? It's like, okay, this, this thing actually could work like this. So uh, Rune also had some crazy ideas about like levered staking ETH, which, you know, I don't really want these protocols to trade directionally, but uh, it's, it's certainly interesting. I kind of want to learn more about the crazy ideas though. Like how would the free floating die work? And like, would that be as valuable as a die that's pegged? that has a soft peg to the dollar like what's the difference between a soft peg which is what die is now and this free floating idea it has something to do with negative rates like being able to charge a negative rate um which you couldn't really do right now uh but yeah the way reflexor does it it's just like negative rates or super positive rates and you just want to like rb you know back and forth against that and it you know can tick a little bit differently you know besides the fact that it's counterfactual to you know what what's implied by its name which is a stable coin uh you know i i, I think you know hater the, no but but again i mean the, the ball game in in crypto and in DeFi is getting massive institutional adoption and the moment a pegged currency or a stable coin currency deviates in any like minor way you're gonna lose a lot of you know institutions um, and so, you know, I, I think if, if we're really sort of targeting, you know, uh, mass adoption in DeFi, you need stable coins that are absolutely pegged and like stay pegged, um, you know, whether decentralized or not, you know, that's, you know, not, neither here nor there, but at the very least, they, they need to ma maintain that, that peg in, in a fairly like responsible and, you know, sort of observable way. You think that's the ball game for DeFi adoption, right? But it's not the ball game yep. for the institutions. They're already well no, served, no, no, are no, they no, not? No, no, no. No, yeah, I, 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 I totally agree with you. Yeah, I, I think that's the the ball game for for DeFi adoption. But you really mean growth, right? Yeah. You mean growth in total assets, like being involved in like DeFi, because TVL I mean, going I, I, to like a, a trillion dollars, not because this a is the, this billion. is actually the core dispute between Rune and some of the more original cypherpunk focused MakerDAO governance token holders, and the sort of more VC backed. I think Hasu was speaking for a lot of that. Um, side at least a month ago some there might be shifts i'm not like totally up right a more pragmatic growth strategy um that is this dispute is what is the what is the use of DeFi? what is the the purpose of it right is it to grow and and be this you know more transparent and faster settlement version of the traditional system or is it to be outside the traditional system something that you know if your government you know, clamps down on your access to financial services, you can always still access, right? I think this, I, these, I think that these there's greater like, value yeah. accrual though, in the instance of us, you know, or, or, or the industry getting like a modern financial system built on, on, on DeFi, like the, there's going to be much more value accrual to, to stakeholders in, in the industry. If it becomes a, a modern financial system that runs in parallel to, to the existing one, rather than one that, you know, sort of runs on on the side, um, sort of like val value accrual versus freedom accrual is sort of yeah. I think the the dispute here, the, right? I'm it's, in the value accrual camp, just no, because I, mean, I, I think, the, I think the freedom fair. accrual camp, you know, means that I have to, you know, potentially piss off regulators, right? And you know, potentially go against laws, you know, OFAC, you know, wh whatever it may be, the IRS you know, re reporting, like I, I, that's just not really like, 
you know, I get it. You know, the ethos of crypto is, you know, fully decentralized. You know, we're, we're not going to abide by, by the, the established rules and stuff. But I, I, I just prefer a system that is, you know, like, I don't know, personal banking is awful, right? Like borrowing, getting a home mortgage is, is awful, right? Like the, like the, the, I, I've, I've traded, you know, products across, you know, di different asset classes, um, you know, in, in, in the financial world. And I can tell you, there are so many sort of uh, inefficiencies in the markets. I, I, I mean, just like you got a bunch of boomers in there as well. Like that there's just <laughs> so many, so many things that, that could be done better and more efficiently yeah. that, that, that it's, it's, it's even, it's mind blowing. Like there, there, there needs, there needs to be trillions of dollars on DeFi. Like right now, like the stuff is already built out and you just need sort of, you know, more regulatory, like clarity to, to really take it to, to the next step. But there, there's no reason that, you know, I have to send like ACH wire payments back and forth. Like there's no reason you can't tokenize a, a treasury security. There's no reason there can't be instant settlement. I mean, the potential is all there. And you're talking about a financial universe that is hundreds of trillions of dollars in size. Like, no, it, this it, is, I mean, I, I, it's a great, it's a great argument. I mean, I, I don't, I think you're definitely right about um, how how performant a lot of these systems could be for you know traditional improving our traditional financial lives. This is that bifurcation though that is gonna is gonna happen, right? There will be you know sort of independent, and then there will be regulated DeFi, and and it's not really you know I think they're both gonna exist. There's really no Absolutely. there's really no doubt about that. Um, and you're right. I mean, there's no you know I I, I think given the adoption of uh, of regulated DeFi, if that happens, um, then you'll start to see this this other side of DeFi, this more independent side, be sort of the the dark web of finance, right? And yeah. I guess the question I, is, mm -hmm. yeah, how can you how 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 allowed is that going to be by the world's you know superpowers? Uh, but absolutely. it will exist. That's it one will, thing I always try to get exist. people. I, I, I totally yeah. agree. The, you can't. The, stop the black it. market's never going away. Like the black market exists, and I think that's the the sort of parallel here. Um, without calling you know crypto <laughs> a black market, uh, no. But, but I mean, but, I think as that, as future mm -hmm. regulation comes and rules, like that's yep. that's very well what could end up happening to DeFi, particularly with and something that's accelerating that path is the reliance on centralized stablecoins. I mean, I think that's really the, the real hook that before that existed, I, I, all of exactly. crypto was relying on on native digital assets for trading, right? And now, and it's, now all, it's centralized. You know, tether and everybody cares circle. about their USDC. And the, 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 yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, I, I think that that, that bifurcation is uh, sort of a really important point in the context of like emerging markets. Um, and so like, you know, one of, one of the best like, you know, use cases for, for Bitcoin or, or the argument for Bitcoin um, and, and some other cryptos is, you know, a store of value and, you know, a hedge against inflation. And there are a lot of EM nations, you know, Nigeria, Argentina, you know, what whatever it may be where we're where really, you know, you need to go outside of the, 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 the financial system that, you know, is allowed to you in order to, to actually get reasonable store, store of value. Um, and so I, I feel you know, sort of sad, you know, for, 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 for places like that, you know, that eventually could have that, that, that sort of black market version of crypto go away because there is a true need, you know, in places like that to, to move capital more efficiently, to store capital, you know, in, 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 in a sort of a, a wealth preserving way. Um, and so, 
you know, I do think that, you know, that, that there's going to be some winners and, and, and some losers from this. But but ultimately, like if we're, we want to get to, you know, the, the, a modern world where, where finance is, is more efficient, um, where, where everybody's involved, where it's global, um, I do think you have to go with, you know, the, the censored, more um, sort of regulated side of things. But, but that's that's the question, though, right? It's like whose rules are we following? You following the U.S. rules, you following China's rules, Europe's rules, like. That, that's why we have, like, the reason this is a global economy is because, like, we have open rules and no restrictions, right? Versus, like, yeah, like, you know, the Europeans are going to want their stocks handled and margined a certain way. Like, the Chinese are going to want their stocks handled and margined a certain way and probably be able to only move from one wallet to the other, and then you'll have the U.S. I mean, obviously, like, U.S.-centric person, I, I love the U.S. Like, you know, it's not, like, the worst thing in the world if U.S. laws were, like, applied to this stuff, but, like that doesn't really work for other places. Right. Right. And these laws can change. Right. I mean, they can, you know, you saw just as an example, um, this isn't like a great example, but there was a, a a Russian gun maker, um, who had donated a bunch of money uh, and raised a bunch of money in crypto to support, uh, Russia's invasion of the, of Ukraine. Right. So on the Russian side of the dispute. Um, but I guess the addresses that he had provided for the donators were Binance, exchange deposit addresses right so they weren't self-custody and binance um froze those at the request of the ukrainian government and they said we have received a lawful request in the jurisdiction that that is applicable and we will comply with it and it's sort of you know i think you know if you support ukraine in that conflict then you're happy about that but you know what's to stop a, a lawful request in Ukraine versus the U.S. versus China versus Iran versus you know North Korea? They look very different. Yeah, I think it's a really important point. Like whose laws is a stablecoin provider is a crypto exchange following? Because from that example it's not necessarily the U.S. laws that, that that finance is following. And if you think about the other example of Tether not blacklisting addresses that the U.S. had sanctioned because of tornado cash, that's Tether saying that these are laws that we're, we're, we're not going to follow. And for users, I think you could be interacting with crypto in a permissionless way, but more often than not, you're going to be interacting with crypto services that are that's fragmented. Like each service is going to follow their own path in terms of regulation. Um, and that it, I think is going to definitely cause a lot of confusion around this conversation around is crypto permissionless? Is crypto censorship resistant? Because there will be aspects of the technology that is, but like the services on top of it, the applications on top of it, on top of it certainly won't be. And DeFi already today, like so much of it is already censored. I think we've seen already like the major DeFi players um, capitulate in some way or another to abide what, by like U.S. sanctions and OFAC compliance. I would agree with you for the most part. I think like there are some extreme examples, but I mean they've also like done a lot. They've gone out of their way to open source uh, their front ends, and so you can run ev- anything locally. So it's like if you're going to open source the front end, you can run it locally. Like yeah, because you're a website, you know you might. You know, I agree that that's probably going a little far, but it's, you know, clearly people have thought about this and I'm kind of glad that there's been work mm-hmm. and, and kind of pushing for that before before the Tornado Cash stuff. It, it, it's kind of like the internet more broadly, right? It's a global network. 
Um, it has global standards for how to interact with it, but different jurisdictions impose different regulations and laws and restrictions on their citizens' use of it. Um, and it feels like that's sort of where the DeFi ecosystem is headed, right? Which is sure. I mean, it exists. It's on Ethereum. Tornado Cash is still there. You know, it's part of that global internet of finance tech stack. But in the US, you better not use it, right? Or you're breaking the law, right? And I think um, just on Tether, right? I mean, their argument is we're not a US entity, right? OFAC sanctions apply, can be applied to foreign entities or individuals. And whether or not Tornado Cash counts as that is is under dispute. You know, Representative Tom Emmer sent a great letter uh, to Secretary of the Treasury Janet Yellen last week, arguing that that doesn't make sense, that Tornado Cash under the law is not an entity. Um, but OFAC can sanction foreign entities, and then it's U.S. individuals, persons, and entities that must comply with that. And Tether said, well, we're not one of those, right? And we haven't separately been told that we are. Um, but it, it does. It's, maybe this part isn't – maybe you get regulated DeFi versus independent DeFi is sort of one big bifurcation. But maybe we get, uh, you know, sort of with the collapse of globalization more broadly, we actually get many different sets of rules and regulations around the world on how to interact with this. I do think clearly the sort of cypherpunk roots um, and and OGs in this space would would hate to hear that, and and they'll probably be working against it. Uh, but it's, I think, you know, we're kind of a long way off. It's we're not really very resistant to that type of stuff, you know, absent what Trey is talking about with you know open sourcing front ends and having the code be open source. You can always deploy it, right? The question is, are they going to come after you for using it? I think it's a good analogy, like the internet being a permissionless protocol, but a lot of the services and applications built on top of it having different laws and jurisdictions that they need to abide to. I don't think it's going to be like a bifurcation of just like regulated and unregulated. It'll be like a very diverse topography of like degrees of compliance with certain countries and not certain countries, et cetera, et cetera. But like the underlying code of the protocol, I think should still be open source. Totally. All right, let's move on. I love that conversation. Very interesting. This is what I wanted to highlight because I, I, I read this post um, and I thought it was, to be honest, extremely mature and a sort of a breath of fresh air um, from Ramon Recurio, uh, the founder of Babylon Finance. Um, Babylon is sort of a, an asset manager, an on-chain asset management platform. They're shutting down. They're going to distribute the funds held by the DAO to uh, token holders and, and completely wind down. Um, and and they they went through a, a couple tough times that sort of led to this. They they raised a seed round in February 2021, almost two million dollars. They set up their on-chain governance in summer of last year. Um, they released an NFT collection, interestingly, in November 2021. Their token, Babel, listed on Uniswap shortly thereafter. Um, publicly launched March 2022, but then the hack of Rari occurred, and they had uh, users whose funds were tied up in 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 the Rari, uh, what, stablecoin? I, I can't recall, Trey. What, what was actually hacked there? It's a, it's like a protocol, so like a isolated lending market. So they had, you know, their their asset management pools on Babylon had some of those tokens that were basically, you know, destroyed by that hack. And then Faye, after merging with Rari, um, which we've talked about, I think we talked about last week and, and in prior weeks and in our newsletter, they canceled the reimbursement to those holders. So um, Ramon said that before that, exploit on rari they were in a pretty strong place but after that um it basically 
started to collapse. Their TVL uh, needed to be around $50 million uh, in order for the protocol to self-fund itself. So anyway, they're closing down. But he he said something really interesting I wanted to highlight. He said, although most protocols slash tokens never wind down and instead remain in a zombie state, we strongly believe that closing down is the only responsible route. Leaving a DAO in a zombie state is definitely easier and cheaper than closing down, and it also has fewer legal complications. However, it is definitely not the moral or ethical thing to do. We have failed, and we need to accept it. It goes without saying that when a project slash startup fails, founders should not receive any funds. We are going to return absolutely all of the team tokens, both vested and unvested. It's really sad that needs to be said. Utterly disappointing to see teams like Faye cashing out when their project has failed. Um, that's what he wrote on Medium. And I, first of all, I, I just wanted to commend the character it takes to admit failure like that and take a, a you know a responsible action. I say the same thing when I used to do venture investing. If there was a a company that failed to just and you see failure down the road, but rather than spend all the remaining money, try to give something back to your investors rather than just burn it uh, you know, in a futile effort to survive when you know it's impossible. Um, but what do you think about that, Trey, uh, in general, like either, I don't know, either generally or just the, the comparison to Faye? I thought, I mean, this, he wrote that sentence in bold, utterly disappointed to see teams like Faye cashing out when their project has failed. Yeah, so I, I won't get too much in the ethics of that, but I, I think uh, an important point here is like, it may be more costly and it might be more legally ambiguous to do the right thing. And I think there are many, many such cases of that, unfortunately, right? Like the reason there are not token dividends for a lot of these projects that generate revenue is because it's hairier, it's hairier uh, regulatory-wise. Um, so you have the situation where the rules are such that you actually have to make your governance token borderline valueless um, to, to not run afoul of, of certain regulations. So I agree, I commend them for doing the right thing. Uh, and it is certainly frustrating that that is the case. Let's just do a couple more. Um, helium, the, what do I have to describe helium? A, a decentralized Wi-Fi hotspot blockchain <laughs> project? Yeah. So they have a plan to, to migrate to Solana. Uh, they're going to wind down all their validators that do the staking uh, for their HNT token um, and and rely on oracles uh and third-party data sources i guess for their project rather than the validators I don't, is this a win for solana no i think i think hnt just ran out of tokens to bribe people with before they could before they can make a project <laughs> like in the treasury you mean they couldn't sell them anymore there was none left to sell or, or not not sell like give to you know people they're trying to bootstrap oh incentives like they, they, and they didn't they yeah. didn't bootstrap it's like the sushi situation right like they didn't bootstrap the liquidity fast enough and now they're out of tokens right like a lot of tokens that came out like 2019 2020 are running into that problem now um maybe the solana thing works i don't know i think it's like a pretty cool concept uh i'm definitely kind of bullish solana is like a you know a number three i think they have a really good biz dev presence uh and you know it's it's kind of easy to plug into so yeah, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of projects like that probably end up there. And just on the Solana uh, tip, Fireblocks is launching support for Solana NFTs, games, and DeFi, um, basically just in general for Solana's blockchain ecosystem of DeFi and, and such, um, and other Web3 stuff. Uh, how important is that, Trey, like Fireblocks support? That's wildly important. So like the whole, whole most of the industry runs on Fireblocks, uh, and it's also uh, a lot of people's kind of portal uh, into DeFi. So I think we saw when they added uh, UST support and Luna 
um, there was like a bunch of money that like rushed right in. Um, so obviously it's a different kind of market now, but that is kind of like the crypto fund, crypto institutional way to access DeFi. So that's important. Trey, are you worried at all about Solana not being able to handle like all the the new perhaps activity and like transactions they might be facing? Because another story is that Optify, which is like a Solana, another Solana app, um, they accidentally shut down their program, but that's because they were doing an upgrade on their app and the upgrade was taking too long because of network congestion. So it sounds as though to me like Solana is still congested and dealing with this issue of not being able to prioritize transactions and, and handle like large network capacity. So uh, do, are you concerned at all about like these issues not going away anytime soon and that like significantly hindering like Solana adoption and value? Yeah. So, I mean, at a high level, you need fees for civil resistance. I haven't seen a better way to do it. Um, so I think they'll definitely need to include that. There's like kind of good news and bad news. It's both the same thing. It's that there's not a whole lot going on on chain right now. So they have a they have time to kind of figure that out, uh, you know, while the market's slow. Let's pack in a couple more real quick, um, even though uh, we've got a hard stop in a, in a few minutes. But Trey, uh, Arbitrum Nitro uh, officially launched. I know you you were a big Arbitrum guy uh, in the past. Um, have you been following this? And And, and just for the... For the audience, Arbitrum is a is a roll up. I think what an optimistic roll up that's built on ETH and L two. Um, and but they just released a new version, which includes increased EVM capabilities. I don't know if that is that EVM equivalency. Is that how we talk about it? So I know that's how that's how Optimism talks about it. I think they are EVM equivalent. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if Arbitrum's kind of going to that model. What I will say is the projects are, you know, pretty comparable. Um, so when you're thinking about a potential like Arbitrum airdrop, that should be pretty chunky. I will say Arbitrum TVL is still higher than, uh, than optimism, even with all the kind of crazy token incentives. Um, so I think once they get their own token, it's, uh, you know, I think they're like around a billion right now. I wouldn't be surprised to see that jump like to two, three, four. Like my base case is that these rollups are going to be, you know, right right under ETH in terms of TBL. Maybe like, you know, you'll have the BNBs and the, and the Trons with, with, with their kind of mousetrap, but like these, that's where the TBL is going to be. Yeah, a lot of people are, are thinking that from an L1 standpoint, that's sort of what the future may look like with Ethereum and its ecosystem achieving um, some of the scalability through L2s that, that really like, why would you build on an alt L1 if the L2s are working, right? And, and it should really be ETH plus L2s you know, and then maybe, like you said, a couple stragglers that have other reasons. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's like the bridging is also getting like a lot better, right? With like the Ave, they can like create and debit debt. So if you have Ave running on Optimism and, and uh, Arbitrum, you can kind of get around some of the composability issues. So yeah, no, I'm quite bullish on, on that whole space. Any word, Trey, on the decentralization process for the sequencer on, on Arbitrum? I know it wasn't a big part of the Nitro upgrade because Nitro upgrade was, was a lot about improving like the composability and also like having some really some pretty significant efficiency gains. Um, but I haven't been hearing too much about, about the process around decentralizing the sequencer. I, I agree with you, Christine. I think that's probably going to be a little bit more difficult than people give it credit for. Um, you know, it's not like the end of the world if you have a, a centralized sequencer. Obviously, like, they can get all, like, the, the MEV, but 
presume presuming they're like acting honestly like for now i don't think it's a huge deal but yeah like that's something they're going to need to think about like where does the optimism token fit into that are you going to need to stake optimism to be a sequencer how are you going to pay gas um i think that's kind of going to be on the fly um i'm really curious to kind of see the arbitrum tokenomics to see if that kind of tackles the the decentralization of the sequencers that makes sense all right, one last one to wrap it up. Uh, this is, I, I find this a little humorous, but also good. Um, the FBI, the U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigation, it has issued recommendations for DeFi investors amid growing numbers of exploits. The FBI says uh, in new recommendations that DeFi investors uh, should uh, do research and see if platforms have done code audits, among other suggestions, citing an uptick in criminals exploiting smart contracts. Um, and they, they said, quote, we recommend uh, that DeFi investors be alert to DeFi investment pools with extremely limited timeframes to join in rapid deployment of smart contracts, especially without the recommended code audit. Good on you, FBI. We've been saying this for months. I think people in the space actively know this, but um, <laughs> what do you, any reaction to that? No, I mean, it's it's important, right? If we're going to onboard, you know, a billion people to this thing, uh, best practices, like, need to be available, you know? Like, we, we need to do education, you know, just as much as you need to worry about your key management, like, you probably need to worry about your smart contract risk. Um, so, yeah. Good on them. All right, Trey Aslanian, uh, Trey of the House of the Lion, uh, our in-house Lannister at Galaxy. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Trey. Thanks also to Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Digital Trading. And as always, my friend Christine Kim uh, from Galaxy Research. Uh, this was Galaxy Brains, another weekly episode. And um, everyone have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, a weekly podcast from Galaxy Digital Research. If you enjoyed the show, please like, rate, review, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to learn more about the work we do at Galaxy Research, sign up for our weekly newsletter at gdr.email. Read our content online at galaxy.com research and follow us on Twitter at glxyresearch. That's all for today. See you next time.